As we continue to work through our series in the Gospel of John so far in the first chapter, the author John has laid out a case to introduce who Jesus is, that he is the light who comes into the darkness, that he is the life of the world, that by him and through him and in him all things are made. And here in John chapter 2, this week and next week, we see Jesus is the introduction of Jesus to the world, how he goes public with his ministry. And these opening scenes this week and next week set the stage and give a foretaste of the work that Jesus has come to do. So in John chapter 2, Scripture reads, the, John chapter 2, John writes this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, that the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then pour the wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit, open our hearts, our minds, our souls, that you would illumine us to the truth of your words, that we may behold wondrous things, Lord, that we would see you as the bridegroom, as the master vintner, as the one in whom our deepest soul's satisfaction is met and is found. We pray this in your son's name, amen. As we come to this passage, there's a couple of things that we need to understand about Scripture and how we engage with Scripture and how we understand what's happening in it. One of the things that's unusual about this passage is that there is no explanation given. Oftentimes in Scripture, when there is a miracle that occurs or some great feat that has occurred, either the person doing that feat, such as Jesus, explains what just happened, or the writer of Scripture explains the significance of what just happened. But in this passage, there is neither. The only thing that we're told at the end of it, in verse 11, is that this is one of the signs. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifests his glory. So we are told that this story, this miracle, is a sign, the first sign that Jesus did. So for us to understand this passage is that we should understand it as what's called an enacted parable, is that Jesus is doing things that convey a much bigger significance. At the same time as we do this, 
We need to be careful in how we treat Scripture, particularly how we treat signs in Scripture. Sometimes people read Scripture and they try to read all kinds of things into the events of Scripture. And they treat the Scriptures as some sort of like code, uh, the Knights Templar, that you need to discern the secret message through the secret decoder ring that this is going to reveal in the passage of Scripture. So, for example, a misplaced use of this, use of this is sometimes, I mean, I've heard sermons where there'll be a sermon on Noah's Ark, and they'll say something like, uh, I've heard this on a, by, on a prominent radio preacher who's generally pretty biblical, and he said, Yes, on Noah's Ark, there were three floors, and it is just so clear, because these three floors are a signify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is so obvious. And not only that, but the Scripture tells us that the Ark was covered with pitch. It was covered with tar on the outside of the Ark to seal it. And that word for covering is the word where we get the word for atonement, which means covering. And that ultimately comes through Jesus Christ. So what's happening here, what Noah does with the Ark, is that he covers the Ark, and the covering there is actually the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Noah is kept afloat with the blood of Christ in the Ark during the 40 days floods. Okay, That's not an uncommon addressing of signs. People take like Rahab's uh, in the conquest of Jericho, that Rahab the prostitute put a, a scarlet um, ribbon, a scarlet cloth out of her windows to be, a, to, to be a sign to the incoming army. And people say, well, what happened is that they saw the, the cloth and the cloth delivered her because of it and the cloth was red and the red pointed forward to the blood of Christ. And so Rahab was saved by the blood of Christ, all right? That's how sometimes people look and try to understand signs and scriptures. But let's think about this for a second. What exactly are those things symbolizing? What is Noah's ark and the floors in Noah's ark symbolizing? What is the pitch over the ark symbolizing? What is Rahab's cloth symbolizing? The answer is absolutely nothing. All right? Absolutely nothing. Because scripture records these as a historical account. The nature of Scripture, the genre of Scripture, records them as a historical account, and they should be understood that way. When we come to John here this morning in John chapter 2, this too is a historical account. But Scripture tells us that this historical account is the public demonstration of a sign, that we should understand that this historical account signifies something greater. That Jesus' miracle here is not just a display of power, but rather signs signify. And they signify who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So with that basic intro, let's dive into this passage. What has happened here? We know that Jesus, the mother of Jesus and Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. As this wedding goes on, there is a great embarrassment that occurs, for it says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Weddings in our society are a big deal, right? I mean, what's the average cost of a wedding nowadays? Uh, What do dads fear as the average cost of a wedding nowadays, right? Back then, weddings were a bigger deal. A wedding today is a a day, an afternoon, an evening. Back then, weddings were a multi-day affair. 
and they involved the whole town, the whole city. Um, relatives would gather together. It was a multi-day celebration that occurred, and it was very public, and it was very significant as the whole, as the whole group came together. And in this celebration, wine is what makes a feast a feast, all right? There is a multi-day celebration, and wine makes a feast a feast. Why? Not because of um, that it would allow for drunkenness, but wine makes a feast a feast because wine is a symbol of exhilaration. It's a symbol of celebration, that you have wine for a celebration. So here's this multi-day feast that is going on, and oh, by the way, at the time, the wedding would have been paid for not by the bride's family. The wedding was paid for by the groom's family. And the two are joined together. And the first act of this as coming into the groom's family of whatever bridal price was paid. As the bride comes into the family, these families are joined together. The first thing that would happen is that the groom's family would put on this feast to celebrate the bride, to celebrate the wedding. And it was a very big public display. But imagine if there was a wedding, or you were at a wedding, or you were having a wedding, or you were putting on a wedding, and all of a sudden, only half of the people got served dinner, right? Everybody's sitting down, if it's served, or you're going through the buffet line, and after the first half of the tables go through, you run out of food. It'd be a huge embarrassment, Right? It'd be embarrassment to the host, it'd be embarrassment to the family, and the bride and groom were saying, did, did, what happened here? Did, didn't you plan for this? Didn't you ble-? No, no, we planned for this, but this is all the, amount that, the, all the amount that we planned for. It would be an enormous embarrassment. And similarly, what's happening here is the same thing. They have one run out of wine. It is what makes a feast a feast. Not only was it an embarrassment, this was such an issue at the time that if a groom's family did not appropriately celebrate, did not have an appropriate wedding, did not do what they were supposed to do, it could, they could actually be subject to a lawsuit by the bride's family for their failure to do their social customs in the midst of the wedding ceremony, okay? So this is a huge social embarrassment that is going on here. And why did it happen? Because the wine ran out. The wine ran out. It's like every enjoyment in life. The wine always runs out. For these newlyweds, it occurred at their wedding reception. They're at their wedding reception, and suddenly, oh, we're getting married. This is going to be the one who's going to fulfill my hopes and dreams. This is going to be the one who's going to provide my financial security. And suddenly, the wine runs out. Wait a second, didn't, didn't you think about this? Didn't you plan it? You have to wonder what that internal conversation was going on at this particular moment. I I, I thought you took care of these things. And disappointment sets in. But the wine always runs out, does it not? And maybe the perspective that you had of what your life was going to be like once you got married, and then after you're married for some time, you realize that the wine of your marriage has run out. Or it happens in other spheres of life that no matter who you are, no matter what wines of life you taste, the experiences of life, no matter how far you go, sooner or later they run out. For some it comes sooner. For others it comes later. And sometimes it often, actually it often happens when life appears to be going great and suddenly the wine runs out. I think of their community here in Southern Maryland. 
the, the, the time of life that people often move here. People move here, they're, they're full of health. They've gotten a good job, they've got career potential, they've got money and their money is increasing. You know, they've got friends, they've got, maybe they've got a house, maybe they're married, they've got a family, they've started to, have, started to have children, and all of a sudden there's this moment, you know, when all of a sudden you look around and you're saying, life is going well, but somehow the wine has lost its sparkle. Somehow the wine fails and it runs out. It could happen in teenage years, where all of a sudden you're saying, what am earth, why, why on earth am I going through this? It happens in, for many students in college years, you know, the sophomore slump. Why the sophomore slump? Because they've been working their whole life to get to this part, and then suddenly their second year of college, they're saying, what am I doing? It, why does any of this stuff matter? For others, it's when they move into family life, where they get married or, or have a family, and suddenly, all of a sudden, what they thought, the, the fulfillment that they thought that they would get from another person, the satisfaction and joy that they would have from having children and having, you know, a house and children, and look at us, look how nice we look, we've got all these different things, and you're saying, is this it? And the wine has run out. For some people, it happens in the midst of their career, that you're saying, you know, that you have been worked hard, you have achieved, you have gotten places, you are going places, and you're the one who is always pressing ahead and then the wine runs out. It's kind of like in the movie Top Gun. When Maverick and Charlie are talking, and Charlie says to Maverick, you're not going to be happy unless you're going Mach 2 with your hair on fire. Right? Because that Maverick was always looking for another experience, looking to live life on the edge, and the wine runs out. Scripture makes it clear in the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, Solomon reflecting on it, he says, yeah, it's not just life experiences, but for those that try to, you know, get more knowledge and be smarter and smarter than everybody else, Solomon says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. The wine has run out. And for some people, the wine runs out when they're trying to build bigger places, get themselves established. Solomon said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I got acreage. I got security. I, I got off the grid. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I mean, I was, I was self-sufficient, and I worked hard for everything that I had and everything that I attained. And Paul Solomon says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, everything that I indulged myself in, I deserved it. I worked hard. I worked hard to get what I want, and so, yeah, I lavished myself because this was my reward for all my toil. I earned it. I deserved it. I deserved to have lavishness. Notice what he says. 
And I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind in the, the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What Solomon is declaring, he says, I have pursued intellectual wisdom. I have pursued a better education. I have pursued having a great house. I have pursued having lots of stuff. I have denied myself no pleasure because I deserved it. He says, the wine has run out. It has all been vanity. It has all been just a chasing after the wind. And we come to this wedding that signifies something greater, and it's the reality for every one of us. There comes a point in your life, whatever it is that you are striving after for, that you realize the wine has run out. But Jesus enters into this parable, and what this wine, what this miracle shows us is that, yes, there is new wine through Jesus Christ. There's new wine that comes through him. Let's examine first what this wine is. Here, again, we're told that this parable, or I'm sorry, this, this, this enacted parable, this historical account, this real miracle that occurred was the first of Jesus' signs. It is the first of his signs. Anytime you are launching a public initiative, a public campaign, anytime you're launching a discipleship campaign, or you're launching a marketing campaign, or you're launching a political campaign, your first steps matter, right? I mean, everything has symbolism. Everything has significance. Every step is choreographed because of the weight of this particular moment. And so the first sign that Jesus gives to introduce who he is and to introduce the work that he has come to do is not feeding the poor, though he does that later. It is not healing the sick, though he heals the sick. It is not casting out demons, though he casts out demons. His first miracle to introduce who he is is he keeps the party going, right? He keeps the party. Is that your image of Jesus? He is the guy that keeps the party going. Notice how this happens in this passage, verse 6 and 9. It says, now, there was, they were out of wine. Verse 6 tells us this. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Do the math. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, the master of the feast, not knowing where it came from, called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So what's the math? 20 to 30 gallons and six stone jars apiece. That's split the difference. That's 150 gallons of wine. That's over 750 bottles of wine. That is a lot of wine. The miracle that Jesus does here and the wine that he brings is unqualifiedly superior. It is unqualifiedly superior as is everything that is tied to Jesus Christ. As is everything that is connected with the kingdom of Jesus. You see, for years, indeed for centuries, Scripture had foretold that when the Messiah comes, when the great work that the Christ is going to do, when he comes, it would be characterized as an age when wine would flow liberally. 
Notice Isaiah chapter 25. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. That God is saying that all peoples will come and taste and see and know that the Lord is good. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. And you, didn't need to be, you don't need to be worried about your cholesterol level. Of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. If you've been in church, that might sound familiar. John quotes this in Revelation chapter 21. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It continues, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And how is that gladness and rejoicing signified? It is through this, a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine that has been well-refined. This is not an isolated reference. It is repeated many, many, many times in the prophets and throughout Scripture. Another example would be Jeremiah 31, verse 12, signifying the Lord's blessing. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. It describes what the goodness of the Lord is like. They shall be they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, over the wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Jesus introduces a symbol of the kingdom of God. He introduces a symbol with over 150 gallons of wine, and he is indicating that the end-time prophecies... That the time when the Christ would come with a new creation and a new kingdom, the time is now and it has broken through in Jesus Christ. This lavish, voluminous sign is a picture of the lavish provision of the new age in Jesus Christ. As we talk about wine as being a sign of God's blessing, of God's goodness, of God's celebration. I do need to note that I know for some of you, a sermon on wine and the goodness of it is challenging. It's challenging because of your experiences. Maybe it's challenging because you are one who has looked for comfort in wine or alcohol or some other substance, that you have looked and longed for just something, you know, that would just take the edge off a bit. Something that would just, you know, just so you can chill. Something that would you know, just, just help you just unplug and escape. And so you have, this sermon is difficult to talk about the goodness of wine because wine has become an abusive thing in your life. And what scripture would indicate is that the misuse of that, and yet even your longing for it, is a distortion of the longing that God has placed in you for him. A distortion, a symptom of something, of a, of a much greater, a, a far greater longing 
for solace and for comfort that only comes through Jesus Christ. And the new wine that Jesus brings comes not through the wines of this life because they always runs out. They always run out. But the new wine comes through the master vintner who is Jesus Christ, the one who brings a new age and brings a new kingdom. That is what this wine is that he brings. But let's examine not only what this wine is, but also how exactly this wine is made. Jesus tells us in verse 6, or the scripture tells us, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. We need to understand that when Jesus does this miracle, he is deliberately using stone jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. That is a deliberate and intentional act. Why? Because Jesus could have easily just refilled the wineskins that are now empty. He could have refilled the wine vats. He could have done what we'll see in a couple weeks with the feeding of the 5,000. You know, a couple loaves and fishes, and he just keeps passing it out, right? He just, it just never goes away. He just grabs another piece, and it rips off. He's there on the cask, and he is just pouring glasses of wine, and they are just never coming out. That thing just never hits the bottom. He just keeps pouring and passing, pouring and passing, pouring and passing. That's not what he does here. Is that he chooses, deliberately, six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Well, purification from what? Well, the Jews had lots of different rituals for purification, and certainly everyone from who, were, who was coming to a wedding feast would want to be purified for coming. And when they came, what were they being purified from? Both from sin that they themselves had committed and also from contamination. They were being purified. These purification rituals dealt with two things. They dealt with sin, the problem of guilt, and also the problem of shame. Now, what's the difference between those two? Guilt is the feeling, the sense, the conviction that I have done something wrong. I have done something wrong, therefore I am guilty. Shame is the feeling not that I have done something wrong, but that I am wrong. That I myself am contaminated. That I myself am unworthy. Not just I have done wrong, but I am wrong. And these purification rites cleanse both of them. Today, the issue of guilt is a lot less than what it used to be. I mean, I've noticed this shift in our culture, shift within, within our church. If you're, I don't know, I'd say over the age of 40, over the age of 45, there's a good chance that most of your upbringing, when you thought about spirituality, guilt was a major issue, right? And today, whether that's experienced a little bit more as people debate whether or not they're actually guilty, and if they are guilty, the reaction to that is they say, well, you know what, I can't believe that I did wrong. Not I did wrong and how do I deal with it, but I can't believe that I did wrong. Because there's a greater emphasis today on shame, and they're really just flip sides of the same coin. It doesn't, both of them are, are problems of sin. And shame is the sense of I am wrong, I am worthy, that I am, I'm, I'm filthy, I'm dirty, I'm not acceptable, and in fact, I really don't want people to get too close to me, I don't want people to, to know me, because if people really knew who I am, if people really knew my thoughts, then I might contaminate them. And, and, I, and I don't want to let that out for other people to be contaminated. That's one experience of it. Another experience goes this way. Imagine if all of your text messages... 
all of your emails, all of your chats, and let's just say all of the thoughts that go through your head are suddenly made public to everyone. This actually happened to some friends of mine recently, is that they were a group and uh, most of them in the group are not Christians and they had a chat group through, through Google Groups and you know, we'd have conversations and comment and make fun of each other and make all kinds of jokes and make all kinds of illicit jokes and what have you. And then someone discovered that Google updated the privacy settings and the entire history of all of their conversations became public and searchable to anyone on the internet that looked up any of their names. Everything became publicly searchable and available to anyone who said, you know, type a name, boom, for years, publicly available. Now, if that were you, what would be your response? For some people, the response to that is to say, you know, um, okay, well, this, you know, is obviously a nightmare. Did I say something that I shouldn't have said? Did I do wrong? Right? Was there something that I, that I shouldn't have done in that interaction that would be incriminating of me or that would be a problem to me? That's some people's concern. But I imagine that for far many people's concern, that would not be it. The first concern would be this. Who saw it? Right? Who saw it? Because I don't want to be viewed as a person who would say those sort of things. I'm not so much concerned whether or not I've actually said those things. I'm just much more concerned if people view me as the type of person that would say those sort of things. I'm concerned that someone would see me not as I want to be project myself to be. That experience is the experience of shame. And how you are and your being and how people and your experience of the things that you have done and whether that indicates about you individually as a person. And so these purification rituals were there to cleanse people both from their guilt and also from their shame, and also to cleanse them from other contamination as well. And so Jesus brings these, these he t- commands them for these jars to be filled with water. Now the other significant thing that we need to know about this is we, we identify it in the verses immediately before this, in this abrupt exchange with his mother in verses 3 through 5. Stay with me as we dive into this. Here's what happens. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, respectable commentators widely disagree on this exchange. Some say this was not rude. It was a cultural custom. Others say... This was incredibly rude, and he was justified, justified to do so. I tend to think that it was abrupt, but not rude and disrespectful. The reason for this is that because when Jesus is on the cross, he says to John and to his mother, he says to, to his mother, woman, behold your son. Like when he is demonstrating compassion for his mother, this is the phrase that he uses. When Jesus meets the woman in the garden, uh, Mary Magdalene, who comes to him, Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Okay? It was, you see this Jesus using this phrase, and so I think it was abrupt, but a respectable, a respectful um, interaction that he has here. But let's dive into this, with this conversation. <laughs> she says, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus' response, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Now, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, my hour, and the word there is referred to for his hour, it always refers to the hour of Jesus' death and crucifixion. Always. And as you're reading through John, this phrase, my hour has come, my hour has not yet come, he set his face towards, towards Jerusalem because his hour is about to come, this phrase, my hour, Jesus' hour, serves as a literary marker for the progression of the story. All right? But it always refers to Jesus' death and crucifixion. So, let's replay this conversation. Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die, woman. What? Right? What? I think what's happening here is this. When you are single, and for those of you who are, did you ever go to a wedding, and you began to wonder about your own wedding? Right? You began to wonder, you're at a wedding and you're not married, and you're beginning to wonder about what your wedding day would be like. And so here is Jesus. He is at this wedding. He's 30 years old, which would have been way old for someone to not be married at this point. And I believe what's happening is that Jesus is at this wedding, and he is experiencing it. And he begins thinking about another wedding. He begins thinking about Another feast, another feast when there will be aged wine well refined, when there will be another feast when there will be fattened marrow and the nations will gather together for it, when scripture would say, would refer to that as the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I believe what's happening is that Jesus is at this moment and he's beginning to to think about and look forward to another wedding. And he knows that in order for this great feast to come, he knows that in order for this, this day to come of this great feast, this great celebration beyond all celebration, he knows that in order for that day to come, there has to be purification. There has to be something for the bride of Christ, his church, his people, to make them a pure and spotless bride. And so here is Jesus in this moment, And all of a sudden, his wife, his mother comes up to him and says to him, they have no wine. The wine ran out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The wine ran out. That's right. The wine always runs out. Of course, because the wine will always run out. The wine has run out. Of course the wine has run out. And that is why I have come, so that my people would experience this eternal feast. That my people would experience the wedding that I have for them. But they need purification. They need something that is going to cleanse them of their guilt and their shame. And that is the reason that I have come for my hour when I die on the cross through the when Christ dies on the cross, where the guilt of people, the sins that they have committed, is nailed to the cross, the shame and indignity due to us for our sins is nailed to the cross. And Jesus is resurrected from the grave by the power of God. And then Jesus is there at this moment saying, yes, there is a wedding feast to come, but but my people need purification. And in order for to have purification, my hour has to come. It has to come so that my people would would be set free. 
that they would be set free from their guilt and shame, that they would be set free from a past that they cannot change, that they would be set free for a future where not only they can change, but a future where they, where they have been changed. That they would be set free for an eternal celebration. No, no, woman, no, this right now, this is not my hour. This is not my hour of their purification. This is also not the hour of the great wine. This is not the hour of the great feast, but it is coming. It is coming. And I want my people to know that the wine that I bring, that the life that I bring is unqualifiedly superior to anything that you would seek in this life or try to find in this life. Do you know what this means for you right now? It means you need to start sipping on the new wine through Jesus. You need to start sipping on the new wine. And this is exactly what his disciples do. After this miracle, it says, the disciples, those who have already become followers of him, it says, now they believed in him. Now they believed in him. They started to sip on the new wine. It means for us, it means that wherever you are, it means whatever guilt and shame you have in your life, it means that no matter how many times you have tried to cleanse yourself and move on only to find yourself needing cleansing for it again, no matter how many times you have dealt with an issue in your past, that when you see somebody, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a person from your college days, that when you see them, the guilt and shame comes right back. And Jesus is saying, no matter what you have done, no matter how often it is that you have found that you need cleansing again and again, you need to know that I can get it out. You need to know that I am the one who will purify you. That whatever guilt and shame you have, I am the one who can make you clean. I am the one who will turn you into a pure and spotless bride. You see, purification deals with the past. But Jesus isn't just concerned about the past. He's concerned about the future. And the purification that Jesus brings, yes, it deals with our past, but the celebration, the new wine, deals with the present. It deals with the future, the future that God has for you. And he says, listen, I have taken care of your past, and I have for you a future. I have purpose for you a future a future of great feasting and a future of great satisfaction. And you want to know how it starts? It starts by sipping on the wine. It starts by believing in Jesus Christ. And it continues, for those who have believed in Christ, it continues by continuing to sip on the wine by saying, you know what, Jesus, you are so much better than the things that I pursue in this life. You are so much better than going mock two with my hair on fire. You are so much better than what marriage or anything else has to offer because, Lord, you have given these things as the gift, not as the answer. You have given these things to be a sign to point to the greater work that you are doing. Your feast is so much grander. It is so much greater. It encompasses all of who we are. 
And Jesus says, come and taste and see and know that the Lord is good. And he invites you again and he invites you again and he invites you again and again to sip the new wine that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one that we need to set our hearts ablaze. For Lord Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Lord, we look to the things of this life to give us hope that only you can provide. Father, we pray that you would grow in us, that you would increase in us an understanding of you, a longing for you, that we would know that we were made for you, that our souls will only find their satisfaction in you. Lord, we hunger, we thirst. Lord, you are our prize and joy. You are the wine of celebration. You are the one who brings a new feast, a feast of well-aged wine and of marrow and of days when we don't have to worry about cholesterol. You are the one that brings light into the darkness, truth into despair, healing to our hurts, joy to our mourning. And Lord, we long for you. We long for the fullness of your kingdom. And Father, we ask that you would give us a foretaste of it, that we would taste and see and know that you are good, and that we would sip the new wine that comes through Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.